You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. In today's episode, we'll be focusing on grief and loss. We'll begin by discussing some important foundational research findings that I truly believe can deepen our understanding of grief in a profound and meaningful way and help us conceptualize grief as an adaptive, functional, understandable, very human response to loss. We'll also highlight five key considerations that can help support us as we navigate our own grief processes and their unique features, complexities, nuances, and intricacies. My hope is that these considerations will also help us enhance the kinds of support and solace that we offer to others who are grieving in their time of highest need. One of the reasons I felt so compelled to focus this episode on grief and ways that we can all support one another in processing and attending to both individual and collective grief experiences was the immense amount of grief and loss that has occurred this year, some of which has been death-related and some of which has not been related to death. And for many of us, these more acute or current experiences of grief and loss have exacerbated not only the experiences of grief and loss that have accumulated across our own lifespans, but the experiences of historical trauma, of historical grief and loss that have existed in our communities across generations. Grief is an experience that can unite us given it is part of our shared humanity. Grief is something we will all inevitably experience in our lifetimes because we cannot love without knowing loss and grief. Once you know grief, you understand its intensity, its rawness, the daunting and overwhelming qualities that can swallow you and make it feel like it's too much to bear at times and this understanding can allow us to build empathy to more closely walk alongside each other in our grief and offer a compassionate space for grief to be heard and yet something often blocks us from providing that to each other despite our best intentions and we often find ourselves falling short of offering the kind of support that grieving people need and deserve and this ability to support one another and to be joined in these times can feel so isolating and so lonely 
Grief is also an experience that can unite us across species. Grief is not unique to humans. Scientists have observed grief and mourning-like behavior in many animal species, in whales and dolphins and elephants, deer, giraffe, chimpanzees, other primates, and even turtles and bison and birds. I imagine many of you have heard the story of Taliqua, an orca whale whose calf died shortly after birth. And this was in 2018. And she carried her calf for over 1,000 miles over the course of 17 days, even as her calf's body was decomposing. And I have a bit of a lump in my throat as I recall this story because I myself and I imagine many of you can relate to those early moments of grief, of how difficult it can be to separate from the body of a loved one in the wake of their death in a way that can be hard to put into words. And I also find this story such a beautifully moving example of these companions of deep love and sorrow that coexist and are often so central to grief. I think one reason it is so difficult to tune into what grieving people want and need is that many of us live in cultures that tend to avoid mourning and also pathologize grief. And even with this awareness, we're not necessarily immune to the effects of this messaging. We can get uncomfortable or concerned when people seem somewhat, quote unquote, stuck in their grief process. And other people can seem irritated with us when we're surpassing their definition of how long we're entitled to or allowed to be grieving. And all of that can, of course, fuel our feelings of guilt that we're not moving on quickly enough or at all and we're not meeting other people's expectations and that kind of guilt and shame can not only add to the weight of the grief but can understandably lead us to bypass our grief in order to try to live up to those standards and expectations of what it means to be functional following a loss, what healthy grieving looks like. And to this end, I recently had someone ask me, just last week in fact, how long am I allowed to grieve my former life? At what point does it stop being okay to mourn the loss of who I used to be, what I used to have? And my answer to her was forever. You're allowed to grieve and mourn forever because grief doesn't necessarily end. It doesn't have a final destination. It's something that becomes interwoven in the fabric of our lives. Once we know it, we can't unknow it. The edges and the texture of our grief may evolve and Grief does change and varies moment to moment, but it becomes integrated into our daily lives. It doesn't disappear, and that isn't the goal. 
But that integration doesn't always happen on its own. Sometimes we need to facilitate that process of integration by truly feeling our grief, fully inhabiting our grief, making space for it, allowing it to coexist with the other facets of our lives, our emotions, our memories, our experiences. And grief is not a problem to be solved. And it might start to feel like a problem when we ignore it or minimize it or bypass it or when we allow other people's judgments of our grief to direct or dominate our behavior when we internalize those messages. And so I think it's really important to remember that for many of us, grief is a reminder of our loss and one that helps us stay connected to the deceased. And of course, grief is also complicated and there are often emotions of betrayal and anger that can live alongside grief. But that grief is a part of human nature and it's an adaptive and valid and understandable response to an aspect of life that is a part of the human experience and so as overwhelming as it may feel at times grieving can be our way or one way of honoring ourselves and the loss. So for all these reasons, I'm here today to talk about grief and the ways we can all support one another in holding space for grief in our lives. And it's my hope that the more we share this knowledge with other people, the more we deepen our own understanding of grief, the more we can continue to work together to shift some of the harmful cultural messaging we all face around grief and really reshape these narratives. So before we talk more about principles that can guide us in our grief process, I want to take a step back to acknowledge what we know from scientific research on grief. And even though the bulk of this research is focused more on grief in the context of death-related losses, I do believe that many of these concepts still apply to grief associated with non-death-related losses. So my hope is that those of you listening who are perhaps not in the throes of dealing with acute experiences of death-related grief and loss may still find a lot of this wisdom beneficial. Many of you may be familiar with the early stage-based models regarding grief, one of the most well-known being Kugler-Ross's model from 1969. And in this model, grievers are thought to go through a series of five emotions or experiences or stages denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And while this work, this model, provided an important foundational language for talking about death and grief that we didn't really previously have and offered a template for understanding in a deeper way, the human experience of grief, it had many limitations, one of the most crucial in my mind being its lack of empirical support. And despite that lack of empirical support, it's still a model that's widely talked about and referenced for today. Models for grief referred to as task-based approaches emerged later in the 90s to try to address some of these limitations of the stage-based models and focused on common themes or tasks associated with grief rather than stages. 
these models acknowledged that grief is a non-linear process and that grievers move in and out of actively grieving, in and out of that more raw, acute grief. These models also proposed that the connection or bond with the deceased or what has been lost changes over time but does continue it doesn't stop with the loss or the death and similarly the process of grief does not end but instead changes and evolves over time so while these task-based models were an improvement to the earlier stage-based models the task-based models also had their own limitations in that cross-cultural and individual differences in grieving were not fully addressed. So as one example, task-based models have been criticized for potentially having a bias towards emotional expression in grief, essentially emphasizing that emotional expression is an important part of the grieving process, which can therefore pathologize those folks for whom emotional expression is not a natural part of their grief process, whether that is due to personal or cultural beliefs and values or something else entirely. In addition, the task-based research has focused almost exclusively on the loss of nuclear family members, which of course hones in on a very narrow slice of the kinds of losses we can experience. So since that time, a third wave of models has emerged, referred to as ideographic models, and these are intended to augment and broaden task-based models by focusing on individual differences and unique experiences of grief. These models are still in their infancy as far as research is concerned, but they do strive to acknowledge and account for differences in individuals' approaches to grief based on a multitude of factors like age, gender, cultural background, and loss history across the lifespan. Essentially, they communicate that there is no one way of grieving that is necessarily preferred or better, and they underscore the importance of recognizing and honoring the diversity and uniqueness in our various approaches to grief. So with this research in mind, I'd like to segue into talking about ways in which we can effectively hold space for grief in ourselves and others, which I've boiled down into five key principles. The first principle underscores the importance of understanding grief through a lens that is rooted in non-judgment and grounded in what we know from both research and human experience about grief. And so as I mentioned earlier, this involves starting with important assumptions that the grief process is not linear and that people need to and will move in and out of active acute grieving. It also emphasizes that there are lots of individual and cultural differences in how people approach grief and different types of losses and assumes that the connection with the deceased or what was lost does not stop or doesn't have to stop if someone doesn't want it to and can continue. And like this bond, the process of grief also does not necessarily end but instead changes over time. And even though grief can be a very intense experience cognitively, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, 
It is important to keep in mind that it is similar to other emotions and that it serves important functions. It communicates an important message to ourselves and also communicates important messages to other people and influences their behavior. So it cues us to recognize that this is a time of need. We are hurting. Something was lost. There is a need for nurturance. There is a need for attention and for feeling the depth of our feelings. And this also cues other people to know that we are in need and that this is a time for them to step up to the plate and offer their support. And in some circumstances, grief can also function to preserve our connection to an important relationship or person. And so there is an adaptive quality to the preservation of that attachment relationship and that connection. The reality is that the depth of our grief is often in direct proportion to the depth of our love and not allowing space for our grief, not allowing ourselves to fully feel the depth and texture of our grief deprives us of a way of honoring the loss and honoring the depth of that love. When we grieve, we are treating ourselves and our loss as valid, legitimate, important, and meaningful. And when we allow others to grieve without minimizing their grief, without hurrying them along, without trying to encourage them to think about their loss differently, we are giving them those same gifts. The second principle I want to highlight is the importance of acknowledging the pain and reality of the loss, which encompasses remembering and staying connected with the deceased. We know from personal experience and scientific research that suppressing emotion usually creates suffering, and that when we allow and experience emotions, that can help their edges soften. It doesn't make the emotions go away necessarily, but it can help them get to a place where life can feel more tolerable even with these intense emotions. All of that being said, to be culturally sensitive and respectful in our responses to grief and how we conceptualize grief, it's important to remember that experiencing emotion is very different than expressing emotion and that emotions can be experienced and processed privately in the absence of being expressed outwardly to others. So the emphasis on grief expression in an interpersonal or community-based context may not be relevant or important for everyone and so therefore encouraging that can minimize and invalidate people for whom that kind of process for experiencing grief is just not relevant or resonant. There are, of course, an infinite number of ways that we can facilitate both emotional experiencing and maintaining a connection with the deceased, whether we do so individually or collectively or both. So I'll briefly talk about four examples, but of course each of these could be an episode in and of themselves. The first involves mindfulness, and mindfulness-based practices are one way that we can notice and acknowledge and be with the ebb and flow of grief without judgment. 
using mindfulness in response to a wave of grief is like a way of saying to ourselves that this grief right here, right now, this pain is here. It makes sense that it's here and it's okay that it's here. We can notice how the grief feels in our bodies in terms of physiological sensations, in terms of body parts that are registering that grief most strongly. We can notice what images or memories, urges, thoughts, or other emotions are associated with the grief. So it helps us tune in to the complexity of our grief experience in a moment-to-moment way. At times, when this noticing can feel too intense, we can focus on our breath as one example for an anchor, a way to ground and settle us. We can even steady our gaze on a soothing object. Sometimes having something outside of ourselves or something else internally other than the emotion of the grief can be a helpful way to help us tolerate it, to help us be with it to make it feel more bearable. We might also call to mind some kind of imagery, perhaps the image of a wave, something that ebbs and flows in nature in the same way as an emotion can. We can also use compassionate touch, so gently resting a hand with some light pressure on the belly or chest or forehead, whatever part of the body feels like it needs some nurturance and attention and soothing. And so this can be a way to provide support to ourselves when we are in the midst of a wave of grief. Mindfulness can also help us be more intentional and discerning about when stepping away from our grief and distracting from it or distancing from it is needed and is an act of self-care. And when stepping away from our grief is a form of avoidance that might be making things harder. So for example, if we see a reminder of a loved one who has died in our home and seeing that reminder is painful because of the grief that it activates, the memories that surface, maybe it's a photograph or an object that the loved one used to enjoy, asking ourselves, is it an act of self-care to temporarily put this object away to get some distance from my grief or is what is needed to be with this grief? Is it important to stay with this object and to fully feel what I feel in response to this cue and this reminder? When that practice of mindfulness helps us discern that we truly are in need of a break, we can then use our mindfulness skills to bring our attention elsewhere, to direct our attention to some place other than the grief and to fully notice that experience and savor that experience. And that redirecting of attention could be towards a number of different things. It could be more fully participating in a conversation with someone else. It could be attending to the sensations of a hot shower, the temperature and texture of the water on the skin. It could be tasting or smelling your cup of tea. It could be noticing the colors and textures and sounds while you're on a hike, while you feel the physical sensations in your body as you walk through the woods. Essentially, 
throwing yourself into another activity in order to distract yourself from the grief. That doesn't necessarily mean that the grief is gone, of course. The grief accompanies you during these activities, but you're directing the attention somewhere else in order to give yourself a little bit of a reprieve. Sometimes that redirection of attention is more accessible than others. You can also use mindfulness to more fully benefit from some kind of self-soothing activity, like listening to music, engaging in movement, spending time in nature, anything that feels restorative and can counterbalance the weight of the grief to some degree. Rituals are another important component to many people's grief processes because they too both facilitate emotional experiencing as well as maintaining a connection to the deceased. I think of rituals as actions that we perform in a certain way and in a certain sequence for a purpose that has deep personal meaning. Sometimes rituals have a broader cultural community or spiritual meaning, but at a minimum, they need to have a meaning that is personal to us. Ideally, rituals engage us in a holistic way, so they involve us physically, cognitively, emotionally, spiritually, and socially. They also provide structured ways for us to actively participate in mourning. And anything can be a ritual. There are an infinite number of possibilities. A ritual could involve visiting a place of special meaning or memory. It could involve lighting a candle and reading meaningful quotes or poems or even saying someone's names or reciting a list of names. It could involve creating a symbol or lieu of remembrance like planting a tree or creating a collage or a mural. It could involve writing and then burning a letter about the circumstances of someone's death. It could be looking at a video or a picture of the deceased while alone in silence or in community with others. It could be tending to a garden or a plant that both symbolically represents the care and love and attention you used to demonstrate towards that person when they were alive, but also gives you a way to continue that action. It gives you a tangible, concrete way to continue to demonstrate your love. And these rituals can be performed daily, multiple times a day, once a week, once a month, once a year. Really, again, deciding on a frequency for ritual that has personal significance and meaning to you. Alan Wolfelt has published some information on tips for cultivating personal grief rituals, and he identifies some key components that can be helpful to consider. And I'll share these elements with you in case it helps you in your exploration of your own rituals around grief and loss, but it is in no way meant to be prescriptive. Again, this really needs to be a deeply personal process and not something that feels overly structured or regimented by someone outside of you. So the first element is intentionality, which involves really making explicit to yourself what your hopes and goals are for the ritual. Perhaps the intention is to make space in your day for grief or remembrance. Perhaps it's your way of communicating with the deceased. Perhaps it's a way of honoring that person. It doesn't have to be anything 
extremely complex, but it does help to make explicit what your hopes and goals are for the ritual so that you can make sure that how you structure the ritual is aligned with those hopes and goals. Another element is actions, considering what kinds of sensory details you'd like to integrate, whether or not you might use movement or the body in some kind of way. So thinking through what actions might be performed and what kinds of sense, senses might be engaged. Symbolism is another consideration, whether there are important objects to include, whether they are actual objects that were important to the deceased or reflective of your relationship with them, or whether they're symbolic manifestations of the relationship in some kind of way. Also considering sequence, thinking through how the ritual could have a beginning, a middle, and an end. This does not have to be formal. It can be organic. It could be starting and ending the ritual with something verbal, with music, with a deep breath, with nothing at all with more of a pause so again it doesn't have to be overly regimented but just being clear with yourself about the sequencing because that sequencing can provide a bit of a container for the grief and the emotions that that we experience presence is another consideration so ensuring that you can commit your time and full engagement to the ritual for its duration and setting up your life in such a way to maximize the chances that that can happen. And finally, heart. So staying open to and accepting of whatever emotions might arise in the context of the ritual, because again, an important piece of the ritual is to experience your emotions and those may be complex and unexpected. Writing is another strategy that many people find useful in facilitating emotional experiencing and maintaining an emotional connection to the deceased. So this writing could be in the form of poetry, writing letters to the deceased, journaling, or even blogging. I also think it's important to note that there are specific evidence-based ways to write that are different from more open-ended journaling. That's not to say that open-ended journaling isn't helpful, but for some people, they find more of a structured, therapeutic approach to writing helpful. And so if that resonates with you, I'd encourage you to reach out to a trained professional who can facilitate that process for you. The last tool that I'll mention is related to the creative arts, which can be another useful way to experience grief and maintain a connection to the deceased. Although there is limited research for the applications of creative arts modalities to grief, it is an emerging area and there is some research that has been conducted. These kinds of modalities could involve dance or movement, painting, singing, photography, collage, really anything that helps you, again, experience emotion, maintain the connection to your loved one in a meaningful way. So while acknowledging the pain of our loss and staying connected to the deceased is hugely important, we also need to find ways to orient ourselves to how our lives have changed since the loss. And this brings us to our third principle, which focuses on adjusting to a life that is different 
or likely different than what you had envisioned. And finding ways to see the future as holding possibility for a life with purpose and meaning and joy and satisfaction that can coexist with grief. So that might involve trying to stay connected to activities you used to enjoy prior to the loss, even in the midst of the magnitude of your loss. For other people, it might be channeling their grief into certain causes or movements that feel personally meaningful. So many parents, for example, whose children have been murdered due to gun violence, hate crimes, police brutality, have become very inspiring social justice advocates and have worked tirelessly towards awareness raising and policy change. Others have dedicated themselves to becoming facilitators of grief support groups or starting nonprofits or scholarship funds. And again, these are not actions one has to or should do in response to grief. I'm sharing them in the spirit of offering some examples of ways in which some grieving people have found ways to connect to meaning and purpose in the wake of loss. And not only have found ways to connect to meaning and purpose in the wake of loss, but have often allowed their grief to shape meaning and purpose or be channeled into that meaning and purpose or even be integrated into that meaning and purpose. And of course, focusing on meaning and purpose in the midst of loss is not intended to diminish or detract from the pain of grief. It's meant to serve as a way of engaging in our moment-to-moment, present-day experience that fully acknowledges and appreciates and honors grief. So ways to hold space for grief while also keeping a forward orientation, trying to have dreams and visions for the future, even while the pain of the loss is still very palpable and present. The fourth theme I want to highlight involves the importance of allowing ourselves to toggle back and forth between a focus on the loss itself and living life with this loss. So essentially oscillating between these two ideas that we've just talked about, fully allowing yourself to feel the depth of the loss, to acknowledge it, to maintain a connection to what was lost, while also allowing yourself to try to find ongoing meaning and purpose and possibility so that grief and joy and satisfaction can all coexist. So on the one hand, we're accepting the reality of the loss, And on the other hand, we're accepting the reality of our changed world. We're experiencing the pain of grief and we're taking time off from the pain of grief. We are distracting and distancing at times. We are adjusting to life without the deceased and we're engaging in the changed environment. We're maintaining a connection to the deceased and we're developing new roles, identities, and relationships or we're reshaping roles and identities and relationships. So we're making space for all of it. And finally, the fifth theme is related to the importance of finding supports that resonate with us and at times enhancing those support networks to the degree that we can. 
So before we can get support and validation from others, we first need to be able to validate ourselves and our experiences of grief. So when we notice a wave of grief, it's important to take note of any signs of invalidation and to observe those and name them, whether that invalidation is coming from within or from the external world. So some examples of invalidation could be statements like, we'll try to look on the bright side, it could be worse, maybe focus on having a positive outlook or staying grateful, or perhaps telling yourself it's not that big of a deal, other people are going through this too. These kinds of statements need to be met with some kind of counterbalance of validation. So we need to be able to respond to invalidation, again, whether it's from internal or external sources, with the recognition that we are entitled to feel our grief, that our feelings are valid and legitimate, and they make sense. Once this validation is in place, when we seek support from other people, we can more accurately express the depth of our pain. So imagine for a minute how differently it might land with a loved one if I say something like, wow, I woke up today feeling so devastated about Sam that it felt like I could barely breathe. Versus saying something like, You know, I woke up feeling kind of rough this morning, but I have a lot to be grateful for, so I'm just really focusing on trying to stay positive. Now, neither one of these statements is invalidating in and of itself. What makes a statement invalidating is whether it bypasses the truth of your experience or minimizes the true depth of your experience. So if I really am feeling totally devastated, and like I'm having trouble breathing, saying something like, yeah, I woke up feeling kind of rough is a self-invalidation. It's not acknowledging the authentic experience that I am having. And not only is it a self-invalidation, it doesn't give the other person the opportunity to respond sensitively to my grief because the info that I am giving them doesn't accurately map onto my true experience. So anything that they say in response probably isn't going to land because they're responding to something that is only a sliver of the truth. It's a watered down version of the truth. So of course, saying the more raw disclosure does require vulnerability and courage. And it also requires discernment. I'm not saying we need to go to everyone in our lives and share this level of vulnerability. We do need to discern who can we go to, who is capable of hearing this and responding sensitively and effectively, and when is a good time to go to that person. But the reality is that even if we go to the most understanding and compassionate person in our lives, if we share something that is an invalidation, not an accurate reflection of our true experience, it is very unlikely that that expression will lead to the kind of validation and support that we deserve and that we are seeking deep down. All of this being said, there are times when even the most well-intentioned people may say something that doesn't resonate or feels very 
off or misattuned. And there are times that giving them feedback about what we do need and how they can be helpful can make a difference. Not everyone will be receptive. Not everyone will be able to integrate that kind of feedback and translate it into meaningful behavioral change that we can observe. So again, there is a need to discern when we want to invest in trying to shape others in in our environment towards the kind of support we need and when we'd rather focus that attention or that energy on expanding our support network or seeking out additional circles of support. So in summary, in order to enhance our abilities to hold space for our grief, the grief of others, the grief of our communities, we first need to start from a place of non-judgment, of deep understanding that grief is an individualized process. It is a unique process. It is non-linear and it doesn't necessarily end, but it can evolve and change over time. Secondly, we need to acknowledge the pain and reality of our loss, which includes finding ways to remember and stay connected with the deceased. And third, we also need to find ways to adjust to a life that is different than what we had envisioned and to connect to meaning and purpose so that joy and grief can coexist together and both have a place at the table. Fourth, we want to allow ourselves to go back and forth between this focus on loss and pain and also on the the present moment and the future and connection to meaning and purpose. And fifth and finally, finding ways to enhance networks of support which often begins with an effort to validate our own experiences of grief so that we can accurately communicate what we are experiencing to others and maximize the chances that they can offer us the support that we need. Again, it's not our responsibility to craft the support that we need, but sometimes taking a bit of ownership over the process can make a meaningful difference. I'd like to close with a quote from Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, a professor at Arizona State University and founder of the international NGO, The Miss Foundation. Also, she is the author of the award-winning book, Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief, which I highly encourage you to read if you have an interest. And she's also a bereaved mom. And she states quite powerfully, The cost of feeling grief is high. The cost of not feeling grief is higher. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.